Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk about another country that uh, I believe most of us love. We certainly should. It's a country that is in the front lines of our war for freedom, for Western civilization, for the Judeo-Christian form of Western civilization, to be precise. And that would be the state of Israel. And we're going to be talking about, uh, among other things, a very, very important article that my colleague and very dear friend, Carolyn Glick, has published in the past day or so at uh, the Jewish News Syndicate, jns.com, I believe is the web handle. It's about the, well, the unbelievable betrayal of the state of Israel by the Biden administration. And that would, of course, be the same President Joe Biden who hived off to Israel shortly after the October 7th massacres and uh, genocidal invasion by Hamas of that country. By the way, Hamas and Fatah, as well as assorted other jihadists, Fatah being the party that is supposed to be the good guys in the Palestinian community, the partners for peace. Well, they were taking videos of some of their horrific, brutal jihadist misconduct, as were their Hamas brothers. This is no time, in short, for us to be undermining, sabotaging, otherwise betraying the state of Israel, let alone, <laughs> unbelievably, trying to topple its government, specifically to remove Benjamin Netanyahu from power. And why? Because Benjamin Netanyahu is under no illusion that there is a two-state solution to this problem, that continuing to provide aid to Hamas, which is what uh, the humanitarian assistance amounts to, uh, is advisable to say nothing of the idea that Israel should enter into some long-term ceasefire with Hamas at any point prior to its complete destruction. This, in short, ladies and gentlemen, is a tale of not simply Joe Biden and his administration, which has been penetrated I want to be clear, by Sharia supremacists of the Muslim Brotherhood stripe, as well as the Iranian stripe. This is about not just what they're doing to our friends in the Jewish state, but what the effects will be if they have their way. And I think this is no exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen. What is in the works now, if you just look at Carolyn's article at uh, JNS.com, there is no doubt about it. There is a, well, a betrayal, yes. A sabotage, yes. An undermining, yes. But I believe a considerable impetus behind the destruction of the state of Israel that is now the policy of the United States government. It will make the kind of shameful surrender and betrayal and all the rest of it that the Biden administration perpetrated on the people of Afghanistan pale into insignificance because the repercussions, should Israel go down, are vastly, vastly greater, bad as it was to our loss of Afghanistan. That's my take on it. We're going to turn now to get that of one of our most valued and regular and faithful contributors to this program. That would be Bill Walton. He is the host, of course, of the Bill Walton Show. He is, among other things, a man who has um, had extraordinarily important positions on Wall Street uh, and leading the conservative movement here in the United States. But um, we're going to be talking to him about what it turns out is a shared passion for the people 
and the nation of Israel. And this perfidy on the part of our government at a moment when Israel not only needs our support, but deserves it, not least because it is fighting our war against the Sharia supremacists, as well as its own. Bill Walton, it's good to have you with us. I apologize for taking so much of your time to get that off my chest, but hopefully it'll serve as a prelude for your own chest bearing, uh, as is needed here, I think, for all Americans, uh, honestly, not just uh, uh, conservatives or Republicans, but all of us who owe a debt of gratitude to the Israelis for what they're trying to do against people who seek our destruction as surely as they do those of the Jews and the Israeli nation itself. Your thoughts, well, sir? I, I think you said it very well, Frank. I mean, this is Israel is now the battlefield for freedom, capitalism, faith. And this war is a, is a microcosm of, of it, pits, it pits barbarism, envy, and death against civilization, creativity, and life. Mm-hmm. Stakes are that big. I mean, yeah. Forget Ukraine, forget some of the other sideshow wars we're in. Uh, this is the heart of the matter. And mm-hmm. you ask yourself the question, Joe Biden, why would Joe Biden be so hostile to Israel? Well, I, I'm, I get, you know, as a recent commentator, new to the game, I guess, I get to say things that I think are maybe a fresh insight. And I can't mm-hmm. see Joe Biden without seeing him as a hologram for Barack Obama. As we know, Barack Obama walked into the Oval Office and the first thing he did was send the bust of Winston Churchill uh, back to the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he has been adamantly hostile to uh, the United States as it, uh, it, uh, actually I put it, he's been a friend to Iran uh, in its war with the United States uh, from day one. Joe Biden didn't really show up in that equation. Barack Obama does. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the coincidences of my life is I owned a house in Calorama about four doors from uh, uh, Barack Obama's. Uh, and, you know, the there party, went the neighborhood. There went the neighborhood. Well, actually, I moved out. But, but I retained a lot of ties. And, of course, everybody, everybody in the neighborhood is progressive, left, woke, Democrat. Right. And there's a buzz now about how pleased they are that it's really clear that Obama's running the shop in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the White House. And they're very excited in the neighborhood about the fact that they may see uh, Michelle replace uh, Joe at the ticket on the ticket and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Gavin Newsom. They, anyway, they think the game's afoot so that Obama's no longer totally in the shadows, but he'll put Michelle out front. It's the mm-hmm. only way to explain this hostility. Um, yeah. And we've got to. This do- is such an important point, and I, I love this image of of the hologram because I think that, you know, the the puppet and you know the the Obama Biden three administration, as I've been calling it for some time now, uh, doesn't really do justice to just how manipulative this is, and and what a fraud that's been perpetrated on the American people it is. I think it is a fraud. And and when you look at Joe Biden and his incapacity, but also back in Joe Biden's earlier career, he wasn't that this implacably hostile to Israel. And oh. and Joe Biden at, at one point- Most Democrats defending, weren't at the time, as it happens. Exactly. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Joe Biden had been defending our border. Now, which, which uh, president would really be uh, who, who Abella, uh, 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 Michelle has openly said she hates America. That, mm. That's one place to start. So who would open our Well, border? she's never been proud of it, let's say, until, uh, until her until husband elected, was until they elected. elected yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, these things that to me, 15, 20 years ago, I'm working in Wall Street seem to be conspiracy theories. Yeah. I want you to hold that thought. We love leading our next segment with a conspiracy theory. God knows. Okay. We'll be right back with more with Bill Walton and his conspiracy theory. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The train wreck that passes for Republican leadership in the U.S. Senate has reached the point where even Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to vote against the so-called immigration reform bill. He has directed Oklahoma Senator James Lankford to negotiate with Democratic counterparts. That's because this legislation is being vehemently rejected by everyone who wants the Biden administration's disastrous destruction of our southern border reversed. Instead, it would legitimize and compound that policy, for example, by allowing in a further 5,000 illegal aliens every day. The expected repudiation of these poisonous fruits of McConnell's leadership by both House Republicans and his own caucus should bring down this aging and increasingly infirm exemplar of the controlled opposition. The GOP stands to win back its Senate majority this fall, but only if it offers a real and appealing alternative to Team Biden's malfeasance. This is Frank Affney. We're back, and I'm pleased to say that Bill Walton is with us and has a conspiracy theory that he wants to share. You know, I have been called a conspiracy theorist, folks. I don't know if this is news to you, but in my experience, the difference between conspiracies and conspiracies is uh, perhaps six months. I think that's your line, Bill. Um, at least it's a, a matter of the uh, the evidence simply being confirmed. Uh, interestingly enough, also, uh, Bill, our, our colleague Andy McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor in um, Rudy Giuliani's Southern District of New York, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, said that they had an adage in the office when he worked there, and that was that every conspiracy begins with a conspiracy theory. Somebody has to put the idea together and then they act on it. And Rudy put away a lot of conspiracies, uh, let the record show. And I think uh, you and I have been pretty good on identifying a number of them in our time too. So get on with this tale because it's an well, important part uh, of our story. In fact, I was going to repeat uh, what you just said about uh, the difference between conspiracy and, and reality is only three months or three, you know, whatever. I'm going to attribute that one to Todd Zawicki, the brilliant law, law professor at uh, George Mason, and maybe others before him. but I, I, was, I was attributing it to you, but you can well, attribute to, it to I'll, anybody I'll, else. I have to drop a footnote to Todd. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, you know, the, it, all these things are personal, and it's not, you don't, it's not, there's no such thing as corporate global strategy. It's almost always personal strategy. And Barack Obama is born in animosity to... Uh, the United States and and has been very supportive of, of of Iran and in fact brought many many Iran supporters into the administration and State Department National Security Agency and they're still there and and so and the, the only conspiracy the confirming conspiracy is only sort of neighborhood gossip where they're openly bragging about how pleased they are with uh, the steps uh, Obama's been taking both with regard to Israel and with regard to uh, our border. Yeah. Uh, now, well, look, we... I, I think the reality is that uh, it's a lot more than neighborhood gossip that is sort of now providing evidence of this. You know, I'm, I'm always mindful of um, the statement that um, Barack made, as I recall, after he left office to the, to the effect that, you know, his ideal arrangement would be to not be president but to essentially be running things from behind the scenes, that the, the nasty business of well, retail politics was not his stand, interesting. The hologram stands up, analogy stands up, I think, pretty well, pretty well when you consider the fact that I don't think Barack Obama could have gotten away with the things that Joe Biden's getting away with because people are fulminating about his senility and his, and his stupidity and so on and so forth. And he, and he's been billed as a moderate guy, not not some wild I, radical. I, I think we've got to pay attention to who's actually behind the curtain, and and look at what they're doing. I mean, they want to prevent uh, Israel from removing Hezbollah forces and missiles from southern Lebanon, uh, which is absolutely an existential threat to Israel. Uh, they've passed. Uh, I think there was an executive order. Let me look it up here, where uh, they're basically making it uh, a crime 
Oh, the, Le the Leahy wall, Law, you may know about that, where it's a crime to uh, uh, engage in any activity in war that's not sanctioned by the United States uh, uh, paradigm of action. War. For, for us to be supporting forces that are uh, yeah, deviating it says, from we've got, it says our own high standards. Obeyed by the same human rights standards that the U.S. Army applies in its operations. Well, we now have a woke U.S. Army's Defense Department led by Lloyd Austin, uh, it's hard to see these people even fighting, let alone defending their country the way uh, Israel is doing theirs. And so, they're and by the way, they are doing so uh, with the scrutiny of the entire world on their military operations. And uh, I have the feeling that their compliance with human rights standards is at least as good as ours has been. I, I'm reminded, you know, we killed. Uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians with firebombing and Dresden and Tokyo and then, of course, atomic weapons. Uh, you know, you do terrible things in war to win. The Israelis have been winning, I think, with an incredible exercise of discipline with respect well, to civilian well, populations and, 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 and have and, some been killed? No question about it. But that's not because they're trying to kill them. That's for and, sure. And they're trying to make this Biden administration, the Obama administration 3.0 is trying to make this about Netanyahu. They're saying, well, he's too tough. Well, something like 80, 85 percent, 90 percent of Israelis, including um, many of, of those who are on the far left in Israel, now support um, what they're doing in Gaza. And they're trying to isolate uh, this as a Netanyahu problem. It's not. The Israelis understand this existential threat. Biden administrations put sanctions on, on many Israelis uh, for doing various things. And it's like they've shifted the sanctions away from Iran to Israel. Well, and I think there are four Israelis so far, but what they're setting up, Bill, is the idea that um, anybody basically in the, the so-called West Bank, the historic heartland of Israel, Judea and Samaria, will be subject to similar kind of uh, pillaring from the United States without, without you know, benefit of any kind of uh, criminal proceeding or, or process, even judicial process in Israel. Well, 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 to me, one of the worst aspects of what we're seeing is the moral equivalence that's taking place here, that somehow these are two sides and Israel's being too tough. But you look at, say, the, what the uh, Palestinians have conducted some 5,600 terrorist attacks, 5,600 against the Israelis. During the same period, I think this is roughly a year, Israel has, has, has taken out uh, uh, Palestinians 60 times. So five, roughly over 100 times more. And yet these are morally equivalent civilizations. As I said at the outset, this is this is the forces of evil and destruction against the forces of creativity, faith, and uh, and uh, and uh, and any any other good thing. You yeah, no, but I, I really think you just you you honed in on what's at the heart of it, Bill. I really do think this is a war between good and evil. It is a yeah. spiritual war. I dedicate this program every single show to the glory of God and His kingdom and. It is an ugly but necessary struggle to fight evil, and particularly the kind of evil that uh, Israel was subjected to on the 7th of October, but that has been basically what those who perpetrated that attack have wanted to do to Israel from its inception. My, my friend George Gilder. We, we can't see all of it. There it is. Israel yeah, test. Uh, George Gilder. George George Gilder wrote a terrific book several years ago called The Israel Test, and I commend it to everyone now, because the way to understand this is that Israel, the Israelis came into that patch of land, you know, 50, 70 years ago with nothing. And out of that, they built a tremendous country, tremendous civilization. Uh, it's one of the most innovative countries in the world. Its tech sector is incredible. Uh, and has really added to the well-being of, of, of the world while retaining its, its peaceful presence. And, and the people attacking them are really from the 12th century, Frank. I mean, this is, this is, this is like yeah. uh, the or, barbarism. Or 7th, depending or seventh, on how far back you want to go. Technically 600. Yeah. What, was, what year did he ride out of the desert? 
but yeah, it's it's it needs to be framed in these stark moral terms. This is not a question of tactics or Netanyahu's being too tough. If we don't defend Israel, if Israel disappears and they're 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 being attacked now in six or seven fronts, if they disappear, the loss for the United States and the rest of the world is complete. You bet. Well, there are certain biblical injunctions about what will happen to a nation that betrays Israel. And uh, that is what I think Biden is inviting here. Talk about evil. Bill Walson, we are out of time. I just did want to make one small correction. I think you were talking about the founding of the modern state of Israel. Of course, the Jews came to that land thousands of years ago and have been there ever since. And praise God that they have. And well, uh, yeah, 1948 we'll safe. Is, uh, is a little recent. We have to let it go at that. <laughs> Goodbye, my friend. Thank you. Come Thank back you. for more soon. Yeah. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Yeah. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. back. And what a delight to be able to say that a woman that I have come not only to admire greatly, but really to cherish as a friend is in the house. Her name is Cheryl Chumley. She's the online editor of the Washington Times, a terrific newspaper, and the author of a number of important books, two of which I actually happen to have here with me, Socialists Don't Sleep and Lockdown. And I commend both of them to you among her many other works in addition to her terrific columns at the Washington Times. Cheryl, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Thank you very much. Indeed. Let me start um, in what will be an all-too-brief conversation, I'm afraid, uh, by asking you about this border business. Um, you've written about it extensively, of course, in your columns. Uh, you are also very much, I know, tracking what's been happening on the Hill. As we speak, the House of Representatives uh, has announced that they don't want any part of this so-called border bill. Actually, it's a supplemental of which border is supposed to be a piece that has been conjured up by Mitch McConnell and by James Lankford in the Senate. And even more astonishing, we have just been told that it looks as though neither Mitch McConnell nor James Lankford will vote for their own legislation. It's so <laughs> defective. What do you make of this? And uh, what are the implications? Well, what I make of the particular piece of legislation, the 370 some odd page piece of legislation, which was ridiculous in itself, right? If we're going right. to deal with border, then we need to just have a clean bill on the border and not toss in Israel funding and, and Ukraine funding. But that to the side, the, the bill is blowing up. And the reason it's blowing up is because Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, being the uh, 
you know, rhino basically that he is, worked with Democrats and thought that he constructed a bill that was that sort of middle ground type of agreement and not recognizing that Americans are sick of the middle ground type of agreement. We want border control and we want it now. And so Republicans- Well, middle ground, meaning leaving the border leaving, open. Leaving the border out. open up to 4,000 yeah. a day. Um, Five, I think. Well, 5, I, you know, I, I saw different numbers. It started out Did at 5,000 and then I think it dropped to 4,000, but that's still really? okay. significant. Let's just say four <laughs> to 5,000 a day and ridiculous Good. before we can start to uh, close our border. So Republicans reading the political tea leaves started backing away from it, leaving Mitch McConnell hanging in the wind with Langford. And so now both they uh, politically, uh, you know, in tune as they are, are stepping back from the bill as well. So we'll see yeah. what happens with it. Politically in tune, I'm not sure does justice to how they've been conducting themselves, but nice they've, they've certainly come up to speed on just how ill-advised this is. Um, and, and again, it raises a question, it seems to me, that has to be discussed in this context. Um, can Republicans in the United States Senate have a reasonable shot at the majority that would otherwise seem pretty well asserted to, just given that I think 20 Democrat seats are up for grabs this time around, whereas compared to 10 or whatever it is on the uh, Republican side. But what are your thoughts, Cheryl, on whether this moment, this evident failing of Mitch McConnell as the minority leader in the Senate should be grounds for finally retiring him from that role and bringing in some new vigorous, and I would hope representative conservative leadership instead. I definitely think that Mitch McConnell's time has come. He's been there for far too long. And the fact that he is so comfortable making deals with Democrats just puts him outside the conservative movement that's taken place in America since Donald Trump. You could even make the case since the Tea Party. But remember, it was Mitch McConnell that wanted to break the Tea Party. That's his words. Indeed. So he's been outside the conservative spectrum for a very long time. And we need new blood in leadership in the Senate, right? And it's not just those who can represent the Constitution and the state's rights, which is what the Senate was supposed to do, but also mm -hmm. to stand strong to Democrats and the media, because this is what the new leadership will walk into. No matter what they do in terms of upholding conservative principles, they're going to be attacked, attacked, attacked. And we need somebody as strong as Donald Trump has been over the years to withstand that pressure. Yeah. And, and I think this is such an important point that if they fail to do this, they genuinely are putting at risk the majority that otherwise is theirs. And especially if President Trump returns to office, he's going to need a strong Senate. He's going to need its support, among other things, you know, the confirmation of his uh, senior appointees and the, you know, key work on his budgets. Um, it, it's just, it seems to me, not simply desirable or a nice to do thing at this particular moment in time. I have the feeling that it's going to prove to be imperative. Uh, will someone step up to take that on? I don't know. I believe that Senator Mike Lee, who leads the Senate Steering Committee, the most conservative faction in that chamber, has been very clear that he believes this this is the final um, blow, uh, and that uh, Mitch McConnell must now go as a result. I, I hope that he will uh, be among those who help bring that about. Cheryl, I, I wanted to visit with you about something we were talking about earlier in the program um, at some length with Bill Walton, because I know that uh, the state of Israel, as a very devout Christian uh, you have an appreciation of the importance of the Holy Land and, and the Jewish state as uh, its defender, you know, for all of us. And the fact that uh, the war that is now underway with Israel and the assorted enemies she has are uh, our enemies as well. And that uh, you, you talk in your book about Christians, you know, must arise. 
socialists don't sleep uh, is is so vital that we stand with the state of Israel. And I just wonder, as you look at these developments, um, I mentioned earlier in the program and to you off air that um, a very important sort of bill of particulars about what the Biden administration has been doing to sabotage the Jewish state has been put together by my friend and colleague, Carolyn Glick um, at JNS.org. And it, it really, it's stupefying when you look at it in all of its details. Uh, they're leaving literally no stone unturned in seeing what they can do uh, to undermine uh, Israel, to even uh, try to overthrow its democratically elected prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Well, let, let me talk briefly about the executive order that Joe Biden just signed. Please. That case in point basically is a not so subtle attack on Israel uh, and threat to Israel that actually emboldens Israel's enemies. And mm-hmm. what what this Joe Biden administration has done is basically drawn a moral equivalency between Israel defending itself against terrorist attackers and the terrorist attackers who want to wipe Israel and the Jewish people from the face of the map, eradicate the people from, from the world. And so from the river you, to the sea for stars. Yes. If you look at the language of this executive order, you sort of have to read between the lines, but If Joe Biden wanted to make a case for Israel on behalf of our friend Israel, he should have issued an executive order that specifically named Hamas and Hezbollah and the terrorists in Iran, and not the four Israeli uh, individuals who have already been apprehended by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's forces. And he he should have uh, underscored the historic Uh, uh, friendship that America has with Israel. But instead, he wants to push a two-state solution, which is completely unfeasible. Uh, Everybody in Israel basically agrees since October 7th, a two-state solution is dead. And what it does is sign a death warrant for Israel. And yet the politics goes forth from this administration, anti-Israel, you can almost say pro-Iran. Yeah, I think that's no exaggeration. It is pro-Iranian. And, and you know, the stunning thing about this is that it's been made the more outrageous by virtue of this show that Joe Biden has conducted, uh, his trip to Israel shortly after October 7th, for one example, but uh, speeches that he's made here and elsewhere. That uh, that exude this sort of unconditional commitment to the state of Israel and support for her, and yet, as as you were saying, uh, Cheryl, I think he's got throughout his administration people who are, if not actual Muslim Brotherhood or Iranian agents. Uh, explicitly, certainly aligned with such enemies of both Israel and the United States. And I think that's where this executive order comes from, for example. And uh, it's worth noting, Cheryl, as you know, that uh, by contrast with these four individuals who have been now singled out for this kind of sanctions, um, there's no sanctioning of the people who have perpetrated 1,500 attacks on uh, Israelis living on the West Bank, the Judea and Samaria. So it, it, the double standards, the, the hypocrisy, the moral turpitude, the subversion, all is such an affront, I think, to what most of us believe and understand we need to stand for, namely our important strategic relationship with Israel. I've now talked through the rest of the time that we had with you, Cheryl. I can't believe it. I've left you without the opportunity even to respond, but I do want to thank you for joining us and I hope you'll come back soon nonetheless. God bless you, my dear, and the work you do at the Washington Times. God bless. Talk to you soon. Be right back. Stay tuned. Oh, sorry. I realized that I had gone on long enough that I didn't have any time to toss it back to you, so forgive me.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The train wreck that passes for Republican leadership in the U.S. Senate has reached the point where even Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to vote against the so-called immigration reform bill. He has directed Oklahoma Senator James Lankford to negotiate with Democratic counterparts. That's because this legislation is being vehemently rejected by everyone who wants the Biden administration's disastrous destruction of our southern border reversed. Instead, it would legitimize and compound that policy, for example, by allowing in a further 5,000 illegal aliens every day. The expected repudiation of these poisonous fruits of McConnell's leadership by both House Republicans and his own caucus should bring down this aging and increasingly infirm exemplar of the controlled opposition. The GOP stands to win back its Senate majority this fall, but only if it offers a real and appealing alternative to Team Biden's malfeasance. This is Frank Afton. We're back, and we have with us, I'm pleased to say, someone who has not been here in altogether too long, but we're delighted always to catch up with Kenneth Raposa. He is a former columnist for the Forbes magazine, now a senior analyst and uh, industry analyst, I should say, for a wonderful group, uh, the Coalition for a Prosperous America. He writes for uh, Discourse Magazine, among other places, we have found a very interesting piece by Kenneth Raposa about the electric batteries that the Chinese Communist Party uh, has come to dominate among many other supply chains, uh, as well as the vehicles that now uh, use those batteries, of course, and are increasingly manufactured in China. Um, Ken, it's good to have you back, and and thank you for uh, the work you do at uh, CPA. It's indispensable, as is your writing. And uh, this piece caught my attention because it happens to track with a lot of other things that we're concerned about, particularly with our Committee on the Present Danger China, in terms of, um, well, dependency on the Chinese Communist Party for uh, our energy security. Uh, absolutely a benighted idea, it would seem, and yet uh, it is being very aggressively advanced by the Biden administration. Talk about that, if you would, in the context, particularly of this uh, electric vehicle business and uh, the batteries that power it. Sure. Well, let's start with, with the basics. You know, China has taken its cue from Brussels and Washington for probably 15 years now that they were going to move to a post-fossil fuels economy starting with the energy grid and the transportation uh, market. And China said, sure, we're on board. We'll help you lower greenhouse gases. We're going to be your solar supply chain player. We're going to be put your European windmill companies out of business. We're now uh, tied for number one with Vestas, a Netherlands company. The United States doesn't have a single wind turbine manufacturer in the top 10, if there's any even to speak of at all. Um, and then we're going, to run the, we're going to run the EV market. You know, outside of Tesla, all the top 10 EV companies in the world are Chinese. Outside of Japan and South Korea, of course, it's all uh, Chinese batteries. You can't drive a BMW i-Series EV without being powered by a Chinese battery. The Ford F-150 Lightning is powered by Cadel. Tesla's batteries, they do have their own native battery, the 4680 as well, which I believe they manufacture with Panasonic, um, or maybe even on their own, I'm not sure. But China, but Tesla has a massive um Reliance on BYD, which is an EV battery manufacturer in China, and Cadel, which is a huge, which is the number one EV battery manufacturer. So China has really played the Western world like a fiddle. They run the renewable energy supply chain and solar. They're going to dominate it in wind. They're going to wipe out Europeans unless they stop putting tariffs or something else on their industry to protect it from the Chinese. And they run the and they run the EV market. They're big players in there. They're bigger than Japan. Yes, Japan has the batteries with Panasonic, but they don't have the cars. China has the cars. Uh, yeah. Korea now has the cars, but you know th they're a big player. China will uh, hit them head on. 
And one of the things I so value about your expertise, Ken, is that uh, you're seeing the macro picture as well as you know some of these specific examples of uh, how the Chinese roll. You know, uh, their uh, well mercantilist approach, I guess, is one way of describing it to the extent that they are pursuing various uh, technologies in a very strategic way, but with a view not simply to building up their own capacity, manufacturing most especially, but really taking down their competitors in the process. Uh, is that happening as you see it now in the EV market? In the EV market, it would happen maybe on the battery side, right? So, of course, you have Cadle and Goshen High Tech in Michigan. They're the two big players who announced investments. Michigan's giving them millions and millions of dollars to set up shop there. I don't know the story about Cadle. I think that might be a Ford deal. We know that I believe Cadle was offered to set up shop in Virginia, and then the governor there said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to set up shop in Michigan instead. Um, Really where China benefits most from a lot of what, what I call the double subsidy on, on renewable energy space in the West, and particularly here in the United States under the Inflation Reduction Act, is solar. And the Wall Street Journal just had a big sol, uh, story on this today, which is where you know the, the concept was we're going to build or rebuild, because remember, solar industry was created in the United States, right? We, we invented the solar cells right out of Silicon Valley. Uh, we wanted to rebuild our native solar industry, you know, and there's only one American in the top 10 of solar. It's called First Solar. They're based in Ohio. The others are all Asian. And and I think 80 percent of them are Chinese. So of all the, the single country that puts the most money into the United States in terms of solar, which the United States all wants to do, the Democrats want solar everywhere. Right. The number one country, of course, to do it in this country right now is China. China is the single country that has like five companies, at least four for sure, that have announced big investments in the United States because of the IRA. So if you're an American company and you want to compete with China on solar locally or even on the world market, because of course we're all global companies, right? They want to sell elsewhere as well. How do you do that when your main competition in China is being subsidized at home and they're getting the tax incentives to produce here? So they're just getting bigger and bigger. And and we're talking, I believe, at least in the case of Michigan, uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in these subsidies. And again, it's an unfair competition uh, that is further uh, enhancing our dependency. And I guess to some extent, the rationale is, well, these companies, yes, they're Chinese, but they're manufacturing stuff here. Therefore, um, it's not as... Uh, you know, dire a situation in terms of <clears throat> our competitiveness and and um, industrial capabilities and so on. But again, that's not how the Chinese generally operate. Okay, so so re- really, Frank, in that situation, think about this: how, how, how I like the frame is when China sets up shop, and whether it's Florida or Texas now, it becomes very hard for the local leaders there, so con- congressional leaders of Texas or Florida, to come out and say. Hey, you know, we don't like this idea of challenging China on X, Y, Z. We don't like this idea of you saying we're going to remove China from the Inflation Reduction Act. We don't like that idea because we have American managers here. We have American employees here. So it's really difficult once China sets up shop in these states for Washington to enact any type of legislation to bar them from what I again, what I call the double subsidy. And and, and make, keeping them as a major power in renewable energy, in the renewable energy space, in the auto industry, in solar, right? Because the local government and the local workers are going to say, but I work for Jinko Solar of Florida. I make $70,000 a year. And they're not going to want to give, they're not going to want to take the fight to China on this. Right. We've certainly seen that in Michigan and uh, Illinois to date. Uh, Ken, we have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. Mike Waller is in the house, and we're not going to do justice to all that is in his new book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. But we're going to try to give you enough so that when we get him back, we have a good launching point for the further discussion about what's happening at the moment. But Mike, just uh, to bring us up to as close to the moment as we can, um, we have clearly been witnessing um, an insinuation of influence operations and espionage and well subversion by this uh, Chinese Communist Party that makes the old Soviet Party in its heyday pale by comparison, does it not? Absolutely. And, and I don't cover it that much in big intel, but the Chinese Communist Party has been able to make uh, ideology part of culture. And they have been able to reach into our popular culture in ways that they would never permit at home using technology that they don't allow back home, but creating it with their own companies with plenty of Americans who will go along to indoctrinate and, and sort of numb the brains of Americans. So TikTok being one of these technologies. Big time. And, and we're really seeing it weaponized now, um, not just for the purposes of collecting big data on young people in this country for I believe, very malevolent purposes, but also, Mike, in, uh, being used to uh, mobilize uh, American kids to a, hate our country, but also to take a pro-Hamas view uh, and even pro-Osama bin Laden view. Uh, talk a little bit about how that plays into this whole subversion uh, of uh, not just you know the population, but also these intelligence agencies. Yeah, so TikTok not only acts or, say, provides a platform for these extremist views, but it seems to be channeling them in ways that, that the other social media companies are, are, are not challenging the real violent, awful stuff. Uh, so it seems to be a state-sponsored or a CCP-sponsored operation, as opposed to merely a private Chinese communist company uh, with Americans. So we, we have to look at the whole thing as an op for many reasons. So if they're if they're using this to mobilize support for Hamas and for for genocide in Israel, and they're using it to promote violent extremism across the United States and racial hatred and everything else, we're looking at a new kind of high tech subversion aimed at our popular culture, aimed at a new generation of people through using popular culture and making it cool. So you imagine just what twenty three years after. 9-11, you have now a an Obama revival. Obama, sorry. Osama bin Laden revival. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't intend that one. But yeah, it's a, so it's a meaning. So Al-Qaeda suddenly becoming cool. And maybe the 9-11 attacks didn't happen, but maybe they should have because we're such a bad society. This is the ultimate in cultural Marxism because it's, now you have an, a whole generation wants to destroy everything about its country. And and we see this is going back to your term, woke, uh, you know, tearing down statues, tearing up our history, tearing down, you know, our constitutional institutions. But just, Mike, before we run out of time, we got about four minutes, and I want to make sure that you give uh, a quick summary of where two of these critical institutions, the Central Intelligence Agency and the FBI, are now. We just on the FBI, we we just had the director of the CIA, of the bureau um, testifying, Christopher Wray, before the Congress last week, saying, you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is prepared to quote wreak havoc unquote on our population, our critical infrastructure with cyber attacks. Uh, th this would seem to be at, greatly at odds with how he's been comporting himself with respect to threats like, oh, I don't know, Chinese military personnel coming across the border and bio labs all over the place and 400 Chinese transformers in our electric grid. Who needs cyber warfare when you can just turn the things off? Yeah. Well, it's nice to see the FBI director say that in 2024, but you've been saying it since the 1980s and you haven't been wrong. You know, you've been you've been properly warning this the whole time. And the whole group at the Center for Security Policy who you brought in has been warning about this constantly. So it's taken now decades for the FBI director to admit this. This shows the depth of rot in our counterintelligence community and our national security apparatus if they can't bring themselves to do this. And as we are friends, you know, Ed Temperlake and, and uh, 
and, and others had said uh, early on in books that the center helped sponsor was that this was happening to us all around us, but the intelligence community wouldn't allow real discussion of it and wouldn't allow assessments to be negative against the Chinese Communist Party. This was a year of the rat. In, including, 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 of course, the FBI, which has the responsibility for domestic counterintelligence. And, and Mike, I, it's just appalling to me, as I mentioned those three examples, but uh, it's just appalling to me that we find um, so little effort being made, especially when they're actually now in some fashion acknowledging the threat to the homeland from the Chinese Communist Party. So we can pat them on the back for that, but they really, they've been not doing their jobs. Now, that's not to say certain units within the FBI and certain agents have. They've been doing a fine job, but they've been given no resources effectively and very little leadership and no cover for doing the kind of work they do. So, so, But if you split that out from the FBI and had a real counterintelligence service that would go in strategically as a standing strategic counterintelligence service, that'd be a big plus for America. But you can't do that under the currently branded Bud Light FBI. Right. And and this just quickly, uh, and we've got a minute, but your recommendations on what you do about the FBI and CIA at this point? So all here in Big Intel, basically there, and the center, this is the Center for Security Policy work going back a couple of years to figure out what to do with this. Is it, It's too big. It's, it, it's a great brand, but it's an obsolete brand. It's, and as a second ago, it's sort of the Bud Light of law enforcement now. Let's retire that brand and use the constituent parts of the Bureau that actually serve purpose for the United States and break them off into either separate agencies or separate, separate standing, smaller, more agile forces, and then and then remove the rest of the positions, get rid of them. Same, divide the CIA into two organizations too, and then, and then get rid of a lot of the personnel because you don't, you just abolish their functions. We don't need as a country, a lot of the, the junk that the CIA is producing. Yeah, operations and analysis, I guess, being the two component parts. Mike, well, this is power such down a... to the states and empower the, the the county sheriffs because they're they're the chief law enforcement officers of their counties, and they can. All of this is another that. day's work. We will be back to you for a further development of it all, Mike. Congratulations on Big Intel. I'm so proud of you. Thanks for the work you do at the Center for Security Policy. I'm proud of that as well, and we'll talk with you in the near future. God bless you, my friend. We'll talk to the rest of you. I hope next time. Until then. Go forth and multiply.